Okay, in our previous chapters, we have noted that Rabbi Salvatore talked about four distinctions between Bereshit, Aleph, and Bet. These differences resulted in Rabbi Salvatore describing two aspects of Adam Harishon, or of every man. Every person has these two aspects, which he simply separated for purposes of clarification, and he calls one Adam, Adam 1, and the other Adam he calls Adam 2. And the key pasuk around which this whole entire story evolved is Salem Elohim. So the is trying to describe the nature of the human being. What makes the human being distinct from the animal kingdom? And therefore, we're seeing this as an exposition, as an interpretation of the pasuk of Salem Elohim. God created man, Salem Elohim. Okay, so good to see you. You look wonderful today, as usual. As Salem Elohim. And <clears throat> this, is what, this is how we defined him. So again, we'll come back to Eli's point and Eli's hara. Whether this Pshat or Derash. I'm saying this flows out of the Pasuk. This is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu intended going back thousands and thousands of years ago when he, just, when he created the human being. We are now flushing out, so to speak, excuse the pun, the details of the creation of Adam Harishon. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to be a human being separate from the animal kingdom? So here Rabbi tells us that there's two aspects to the human being and we are all involved in these two aspects. All agree that the defining character trait of the human being is Salem Elohim. No animal from the entire animal kingdom can lay claim to this distinction. So this is what the human being is all about. Humanity equals Salem Elohim. And the question is, what does this really mean? And Rosalie says, Adam Adishon's personality revolves around Vekib Shuha. Adam 1, which is true of all of us, remember. And there are two aspects. One aspect is Adam 1, which means Kibshua. Conquer the world. Extend the world. Understand the world. Find your ultimate dignity and majesty as Salman Elohim in the external world. Now, by virtue of that, you're going to master the universe through knowledge and understanding. Now, again, keep in mind how extraordinarily radical this notion is for a Gadol Olam, as our subject is, to, to sanction, legitimize the pursuit of secular knowledge, which in fact is not really secular whatsoever. This is what God wants of us. To me, it's such an obvious point. To others, it's such a non-obvious point. It's striking how one can come away, one second, with two different perceptions of this philosophical notion. To me, it's obvious that there's no thing as a secular study. Chemistry, biology, physics, psychology, and everything else is part of what Hashem wants to do. To me, maybe because I'm already so infused with this, but I grew up this way. I think it's obvious from, from everything is that what one, Hashem wants of us is to pursue knowledge at every single level, in every single direction, at every single point in time of life. That's what Kepshuha means. Master, conquer the world through an understanding of the world. Borei Olam wants us to understand the chemistry, physics, biology, etc. of the world itself. Imitate your creator by creating. That's Adam 1. Joseph. What is? Oh, okay, good. Yeah, but that's a radical statement, what you're saying now. I mean, maybe we're just too infuse the other. Of the last hundred years, years, perhaps. Okay. What if you gave heavy emphasis to Correct. Adam 2? What if you gave heavy emphasis to Adam 2, conquer yourself, within yourself? We'll come, come to that. That would be... We move a lot of technology. One at a time. Right. I can't agree with two people. It's not sequential. It's, it's, parallel, it's, it's, par- it's oscillating parallel lines. Each of us, in fact, ultimately experiences a dialectic, a pendulum effect of you are both Adam 1 and Adam 2. Therefore, the resolution 
is never complete. There's no ultimate redemption for that person. You cannot live an Adam to life. God does not want you to live an Adam to life. He wants you to find your dignity and majesty as the Elohim. The monk who lives in the desert is not completely expressing and doing what Kadosh Baruch Hu wants, which is to involve, engage the world on every level. On the technological level, on the intellectual level, on the philosophical level, engage the world, conquer the world, master the world. So Rabbi Soloveitchik wants of us to do both. Kadosh Baruch Hu wants of us, as Rabbi Soloveitchik sees it, to do both, Adam 1 and Adam 2. And David's point is a good one. Can we say at the end of the day that there's a slight edge for Adam yeah, too? Is there a slight edge? So he doesn't say that. But it's not a higher level. That's exactly the point. You need both. It's an oscillating effect, which is what I would venture to say is his understanding of that. Getting close to God is the ultimate. You get close to God as Adam one. Each one. Creative mode. Exactly. So, both. Both. You can't escape this dichotomy. You are dichotomized people. To live a full existence, you live a dichotomized existence. Which is perhaps the way we're supposed to. It's an oscillation. So you have two holes. It's not one split in two. It's two holes. You're engaged fully in both holes. Each one is a whole in terms of himself. Each person is there as an Adam one. Each person is there as an Adam too. So one it's not... One encompass two of them also. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's eventually, each one needs the other. Okay. Adam two needs Adam one, so to speak, because they're really one person, because Adam two must share with Adam one his spiritual insights, his need for Akadosh Baruch Hu. But on the other hand, Adam two needs Adam one to fulfill the destiny of a human being, which is to know the world. You won't come close to Akadosh Baruch Hu, this is my, straight my mind again, without conquering, mastering the world. Kivshuha is one pasuk. Oldav Shomra is Bereshit Perek Beth. Oldav Shomra means staying close together, safeguarding the world, almost a more passive as opposed to a more active philosophy of life. So now, Adam, the first forges, as we know, a pragmatic utilitarian relationship with Eve to achieve their mutual ends. That's one form of a marriage. You have pragmatic, you wash the dishes and I take out the garbage. Pragmatic. Both are following, Adam 1 and Adam 2 are following the Creator's commandment, as well as Adam and Eve are following the Creator's commandment. Here, the divine name that characterizes Adam 1 is Elohim, force of nature. Exclusively, Rashid Pedic Aleph will use the term Elohim. Adam 1 also has to create a community, what Rabbi Sosha calls a natural community. For us to achieve our ends, we have to share certain kinds of interests to build Migdal Bavel. Adam 1 is the builder of Migdal Bavel. And insofar as it's only Migdal Bavel, it is really short of the divine ideal. It's a natural community of shared interests, in his words. Now, because he's so concerned with building and construction and all of this, he lives what we call a surface existence, interested in majesty and becoming a somebody, and fulfilling his role assigned to him by his creator. Good. He achieves ultimately dignity and nobility in following his creator's commandment. Adam 1, part of us, is doing what Hashem wants of us. Necessary for this is a social context, which we call the natural community. Adam 2, by contrast, the other aspect of the total Selim Adam personality, raises a whole different set of questions. Not how does it work, but rather... Who am I? 
What am I doing here? Who is God and what does God want of me that Adam 2 raises? Adam 1 never raises those kinds of questions. He's concerned with pragmatically achieving, achieving his success in building. Adam 2 experiences what I was going to call ontological loneliness. By virtue of who you are, you are lonely. You can never feel completely at home in society as it is. Why are you lonely? You look at yourself. You realize yourself to be a person separate from all other people. No two people are alike. Your uniqueness is that spur to your awareness that you are really lonely in the world. And therefore, in Perek Bet of Bereshit, Adam too, so to speak, from Bereshit Perek Bet, searches for a partner. And what happens? What does I say about Adam too? The law matzah ezer He found no one to share with him that in-depth feeling of loneliness. To whom can he speak? Now, look, it's obvious that all of us have experienced various crises at one point or another that you cannot speak to everybody about. And you may have experienced, could be a positive or, God forbid, a negative experience wherein you need to speak to somebody, you want to speak to somebody, you cannot speak to somebody. You realize how different you are from somebody because you cannot share. It's very sad if one experiences that experience and cannot share with his spouse, let's say. And that's true of women to men and men to women. Fundamentally, we are different. And you realize how different you are from that spouse and from each other and to whom do you speak very difficult when you are that lonely in the world and very difficult so there's a search for meaning in life Adam too wants to find what is his purpose of himself and all that is he's so aware of how different he is he needs someone to share his loneliness with in fact he needs a community but a certain kind of community and what kind of community is that not a pragmatic community to go out and build and create a great business or a great Migdal Bavel but Rather, a community which he, Rabbi Savage calls covenantal community. Interesting is that term has taken on its own life in the in Jewish theological, philosophical thinking, in that now it's used all over the place, but it's Rabbi Savage's invention, quote unquote, of a covenant, emphasizing the covenant of the Bidi, the covenantal community. Who are the members of this covenant community? Adam, to, Hava, to, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the Almighty. They all share through mutual consent. Rabbi emphasizes over here the freedom with which man has to either enter this covenantal community or not enter this covenantal community. If he chooses to enter the covenantal community, then he forges a bond between himself, Hava, and Hashem. A community where there's shared relationships, much more so than shared interests. There's a depth relationship between Adam and Hava, all sharing over here with Hashem. He talks about this issue in chapter 5, page 43, which I think we've read a little bit from. He joins men and shares in his covenantal existence, to infinity, that's Hashem, temporality and eternity, creature and creator come involved in the same community. They bind themselves together and participate in a unitive existence, all sharing together. Now, what's interesting over here is that when you have a relationship with Eve, what binds you together with her? Shared loneliness? Yes. But once I'm willing to share with you, I've automatically done something in terms of myself. What have I done? I've sacrificed my sole preoccupation of self to share with you. So I've gone out of my loneliness in order to share. I've 
sacrificed, I've taken myself a step back in order to become one with you. So too when man comes into this community with Hashem, you must take a step back and... What did Hashem share with us? Himself. The experience of being there. We don't have no experience with Hashem. You always do. Hashem, you did. And anybody that prays does. Well, what Rabbi Shosh says in, in the this, this chapters ahead, which we're not going to... We share what Hashem, Hashem shares with us, and then we don't see where it is. His word, His presence, His being, every day. And what happens um, later on is that in the Kalim community, there is a dialogue. When God speaks, it's called prophecy. When man speaks, it's called prayer. prayer. So it's a mutual dialogue going on, one to the other. There are times we, don't have, we only have prayer. There are times in history when one partner of the relationship is silent. Okay. As is true in any relationship. Okay. It may extend for a long period of time. Right. So that's part of what he says over here. And that, we're not going to read that chapter because it's really far removed from the same little king aspect of it. We're just going to finish with these two chapters over okay. here. But that's certainly what he's talking about. Good. Now in this comment you have shared relationships, you have meaningfulness, you have a community of commitments. And what provides the significance and meaningfulness over here is the participation of Borei Olam. Now, when Borei Olam enters the picture, there's what Adam needs most is brought into the picture, which is redemption. He needs to feel significant. He's alone or lonely in the universe. God yet grants him, through Tzadam Elkim, a certain status. Adam II, in a search for redemption, finds it in the covenantal community of a shared relationship with and with Now, what characterizes the worship of Adam and Chava? Sacrificial action, denying that which one most wants for the sake of a higher, more noble end. You give to the other. Right? We've read already the essay that Rabbi Soledic had written, which he calls the due morality of Judaism. We see where the issue in the most intimate area of life, Mikveh and Ida where that plays a role, where Adam, or every human being, has to sacrifice what he wants most, his victory, in order to master himself. One achieves nobility and dignity in mastering oneself and not giving in to one's interest in momentary pleasure. Abraham has to give up his heart. Moshe has to give up, enter Israel, all in order to achieve this relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If you are, do all that you want, in a marriage, let's say, you're the person that wears the pants, call it that, and you do all that you want, you're a complete master and totally dominating part of the relationship. What kind of relationship is it? Is that a relationship of shared interest? Obviously not. To take a step back and the other person take a step forward is when you have shared dialogue, shared interest, where you enter into the realm of the each other. And so too over here, one has to master oneself, sacrificial action and retreat precisely the moment that one wants to achieve victory. Moshe desperately wants to Israel. No, you have to you cannot achieve full redemption. You still are part Adam 1. Adam 1 means you're not concerned with what God wants from you. You are. But you're not in the same in-depth fashion as Adam 2. Moshe had redemption by not going into Israel. Right. Correct. Exactly. Correct. The definition of redemption is 
significance in front of it. Redemption is what no, you find significance in in, 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 the, in the relationship that you have with Hashem, which provides redemption. Not that does provide significance and meaningfulness to life. You temper yourself. You temper yourself. You you, you achieve. Say, I didn't make. I didn't achieve this by myself. No, 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 I didn't have to Reaching a point. It's it's not a final concluding point. It's an oscillating point where you are redeemed, as Moshe, let's say, was, but then you don't, and you sacrifice to achieve that goal, right? And you feel, at the end of the day, did Moshe feel when he wasn't allowed to enter into Israel, which really is the culminating victory of Adam 1 or Adam 2? Right. right. Of Adam 1 or Adam 2, Moshe? Adam 1. Of Adam 1. Yeah. So but at the end, he doesn't achieve that. But he feels, okay, I've achieved redemption over here, but he still has part of his personality part of his motive of his need as an animal personality to achieve victory. He subjugates himself to the... Uh, to the higher noble end. Right. And at times, what I want to tell you something, you know what, at this point, now you can go forward. Like Abraham, take its heart back, achieve what you, you've achieved it. You've achieved the redemption and Adam one. The height of sacrifice of giving its heart, you've then felt meaningfulness, significance, and comfort with Adam to life. Because in Adam to life, you're willing to give anything and everything for God. You're saying God is the focal point of all that I think and do. But then, if you only think that way, you've never achieved what you need to achieve by virtue of Selim majesty. The monk in the desert is not a majestic person. He's a helpless person. He's a passive person. It's not what God wants of us. He actually wants the oscillation between Adam 1 and Adam 2. So Moshe achieved redemption, but then the next moment is, but I still want to go in, so to speak. I still need to go in. I still need to I think if achieve. I, if I win the prize, but don't take it. Right. <laughs> Win the prize, but don't. And that's a noble person. Fashioned in that way. In a community of commitment, in the covenantal community, you are willing to sacrifice for the other. And obviously in a marriage as well, where you achieve nobility when you don't do what you want to do, but you're willing to give up what you want to do for the sake of the other person. As much as you want to do what you want to do. And even if you're able to do it. You're, you're absolutely able to do it. <laughs> Sorry? Yes, right, right, right. So you are. Correct? Now, we find that Akadosh Baruch is viewed over here as a fellow member of this kind of community, an integral part of it. Let's look at chapter 6 for a moment. Now, as, as even though as we said before, the man of faith is provoked, like Adam the first, by the cosmos. Adam the first sees the cosmos and what does he want to do with it? He wants to conquer it. He wants to put a person on the moon. He's the technological person par excellence. Adam the first. Adam second also sees the cosmos. What does he see when he sees the cosmos? Which he is inquisitive. He sees the covenant. The covenant provides him with an answer. The covenantal confrontation. The covenantal confrontation is indispensable for the man of faith. And his longing for God he is Many a time he's enchanted with the cosmic revelation and lives through moments of despair. Naturally, he's inspired by the great joy experience when he gets a glimpse of the true, real, the truly real hiding behind magnificent cosmic facade. However, he's also tormented by the stretched out expression felt when the truly real seems to disappear from the cosmic scene. Hashem says, Hashem From far away, God appears. God also is in a almost as a kind of metaphysical gesture of appearing and then disappearing. It's not an easy relationship. Here, contrary to Norman Vincent Peale's 1955 religion as optimism, 
right? It's exactly the opposite. Religion over here serves as your constant struggle, never fully finding complete redemption in any world that you're living in. Not in the Adam 2 world or in the Adam 1 world. Both are parts of your world, but you keep going back and forth and you never fully experience harmony and tranquility and ease and rest. By using the word redemption, it seems to think that Adam 2 should overcome Adam 1 because redemption connotes some sort of guilt that you're going to redeem yourself from. So the Adam 1 pushing, pushing, pushing is sort of, sort of a negative. a relationship. <laughs> some sort of a negative because the redemption comes in Adam 2. So there is like a negative. Two both is, both are negative. Both are negatives. Adam 1 is negative, no, Adam 2 is negative. Adam 2 to the extreme is negative. Adam 2 to the extreme is negative, but Adam 2 is the goal because that's the redemption. We're going to be, not we're going to be redeemed through Adam 2, not through Adam 1. Each one has, each has okay. a part of herself that he needs to fully express. Okay. Adam 2, or this person, will find quasi-redemption, because well, he is Adam 1 also. He's Adam 1, but if he takes Adam 1, he has to redeem himself through Adam 2 because Adam 1 is going to overcome and he loses sight of what... what Correct, but then once he's redeemed Adam 2... As Moshe was, as what he's it, redeemed and Adam two. Then what happens? Then he's redeemed, finished. That's it's not goal. finished. That's his point of life, because God wants you to be Adam one as well. Back to Adam. So it's not, the goal is not Adam. The goal, Hashem is not redemption. Then he becomes a monk. It's Adam two's redemption goal. If he's redeemed, then Adam two becomes a monk at that point. Exactly, which is not what God wants. Okay. Adam two's goal is redemption. It's not God's goal. God's goal is to be this complete Son of Elohim, which means oh, Adam one right. and Adam that's two. A that's Correct. Not God's goal, it's the man's goal. Right, right. So that's so as far as insofar as we're Adam two persons, like, we I find it. But we go back to what God wants of us, which is to achieve majesty and dignity as a and human he wants being. That to be a continuing back, correct, exactly. You are tormented by the stress and desperation felt when the truly real seems to disappear from the cosmic scene. Of course, God speaks through His works. Psalm seventy-two, verse ill. The heavens declare the glory of God. His handiwork. Yet, yeah, let me ask: What kind of tale do the heavens tell? It's an extraordinary formulation. Shemayim Asafarim Kibod El. Right? Say it every Shabbat. What kind of tale do the t- heavens tell? Is it a personal tale addressed to someone or is it a tale which is not intended for any audience? Do the heavens sing the glory of the Creator without troubling themselves to find out whether someone is listening to this great song or the really interested in man the listener? I believe the answer to this question is obvious. If the tale of the heavens were a personal one just to man then there would be no need for another encounter with God. God in His infinite wisdom arranged for the apocalyptic Kavato meeting with man, we may conclude that the message of the heavens is the best and equivocal one. What he means to say is that at the level of cosmic confrontation with God, man is faced with an exasperating paradox. The heavens speak to you, but they're not really concerned with you. On one hand, he beholds God in every corner of creation, in the flying of the plant, the rushing of the tide, moving to his own muscle, as if God were at hand close to him beside men engaging in friendly dialogue. And yet, the very moment man turns to face God, he finds him remote, unapproachable, enveloped in transcendental and mastery. Which famous parts of Philae express this very direct paradox of the human divine relationship? Yeshayahu Perekvav. Kadosh, 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 infinite transcendence, and, next part of that, Melucholaz Kivodor, which means what? God is at your bedside. Whatever you need God most. When man needs God, God is right there. But I turn to face God, and he's not there. He's whisked away. Did not Isaiah behold God, Ram and Isa? Exalt and throne above creation. At the, si- at the same time, the trend was just filled in the temple, the great universe, from the flying nebulae to one's most intimate heartbeat. Did not the angels sing, transcendent, yet, he is the Lord of hosts who resides in every infinitesimal particle of creation, and the whole universe is replete with his glory. That's God. In short, the cosmic experience is antithetic and tantalizing. 
Hadilaza because you want to know it. Antithetic because it it represents this paradox of God being and non-being, non-presence, I should say. It exhausts itself in the awesome dichotomy of God's involvement in the drama of creation, as it, and His exaltedness above and remoteness from this very drama. This dichotomy cancels the intimacy and immediacy from one's relationship with God, and renders the personal approach to God complicated and difficult. God as cosmic ruler is beheld in His boundless majesty, reigning supreme over creation. His will crystallizes the natural law, His word determining the behavioral patterns of nature, His everywhere at the same time, above and outside of everything, transcendent and kadosh, which means removed. When man who just beheld God's presence turns around to address himself to the mass of creation, and one would have wanted God to say, I accept you, I'm here for you, and continue the intimacy of that relationship. But paradoxically, at that moment, what happens? He finds the master creator gone, enveloped in a cloud of mystery, winking to him from the awesome beyond. Therefore, the man of faith, in order to redeem himself from his loneliness and misery, must meet God, not at the cosmic level, but rather at a personal, covenantal level, where he can be near him and feel free in his presence. Paradoxical statement. When you face the king, intimately, you would think that you would not feel free. Why do you feel free? What do you really feel? Secure. You feel comfortable. You feel everything works out. All is well. Which is free. Which is free. Almost, and this he'll use in many essays, the feeling of childlike trust in God. It's astounding. I mean, there's no other word that one can use to describe what he writes in this and other essays. That to be a man of faith, to be a true Tamin Hacham, what you really need... Book it off. What you truly need is to have the sharpness of mind and yet... Absolutely. And then, ultimately, as well have childlike naivete and innocence in your approach to God. The child feels comfortable when the parent walks in. It's an astounding sight that we've all seen. Child could have bruised his finger. The mother comes. Not always us men. We men. Child, mother comes and holds the child very close. And the child feels comfortable, secure. Every child needs to have that feeling of security that the, the parent but is I always mean, close by. Like bridging to that, not that you have agreed, agreed, to agreed, absolutely. No, not opposed to each other. Yeah. You have to have both. You have to have both in order to feel, to be that true Taminacham. In the depths of your infinite wisdom, you find what you really don't know and you feel close to God. Okay. Is, so that solidity, that confidence happens most when the parent or God is most present. Where you can be near him and feel free in this person. You feel good and free. Now I can explore because I feel the security of God comforting me. Abraham, Abraham, the knight of faith, according to our tradition, sought and discovered God in the starlight heavens of Mesopotamia. Abraham the philosopher. Yet he felt intense loneliness and could not find solace in the silent companionship of God. How many years? Abraham discovers God at 40 and then for another till he's 75 years old does God speak to him. Who's Image was reflected in the boundless stretches of the cosmos. Only we met God on earth as father, brother, and friend, not only along the uncharted astral routes did he feel redeemed. Abraham felt secure. And then the sacrificial action. Then God says, well, if you want to enter into this relationship, as every male-woman relationship is, if you want to be truly, intimately, profoundly married, you must engage in sacrificial action, willing to give to the other something what the other wants. If it's all me, 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 
then you're stuck at the immature level of existence of a 17-year-old who only wants myself. Where the whole world revolves around me. I need to have now your complete time and attention. I need everything. But why did, why did Abraham only feel fulfilled until he shared it with the Olam? Otherwise, he should have been satisfied just with him and Hashem. That's Adam one. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. That's Adam two. Yeah. So, he's Adam one, sees God in the universe, discovers the pagan deities are nothing, and all of a sudden what happens? He finds God, but the well, cosmic God. Wait, 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 wait. Cosmic God. One second. The cosmic God. Okay. Then it's not enough. So now I'm lonely. Okay. So then God speaks to him. And now he feels comfortable that what I've searched for, I found. His search has ended. He's, what he's searched for, he's found. So now Adam, now Abraham feels comfortable with God as father, brother, and friend. Right? right. Now, imposed upon you, when you discover a great truth, is the moral obligation of sharing that truth with others. Moshe, as a prophet, was not simply alone in his tent, and that's it, but rather, Abraham had a, the prophet has a political role, so to speak, quote-unquote political role, or a social role as well. well he must go and share. He must go and share. So we'll get to that. Our Sage of Abraham appeared, appeared, Majesti Di, which was the only place in the heavens. Before Abraham appeared, God was appeared, which was only in the heavens. And it was a mute nature which spoke, quote-unquote, of the glory of God. It was Abraham who crowned, quote-unquote, God, the God of the earth, that is the God of men. Right? And he gives us all this in Bashit Daba. Second paragraph in this footnote on page 51. The trouble with all rational demonstrations of the existence of God with which history of philosophy abounds consists in their being exactly what they were meant to be, all by those who, from them, abstract logical demonstrations, divorced from the living, primal experiences in which these demonstrations are rooted. The difference is when God appeared in reality is an experience. When God is comprehended through reality, it's an intellectual performance. What does Adam to want? Does he want intellectual performance or does he want an experience? The answer is obviously experience. Therefore, we have to say God has to appear in reality rather than through reality. Correct? Good. So he tells us at the end of this footnote, instead of saying that the most elementary existential awareness as a subjective I exists, and an objective world around me exists, a way of saying it, that's all intellectual. The theologians engage in formal personal understanding Because of this, they expose themselves to human kind's binding criticism that the logical categories are applicable only within the limits of the human scientific experience. Now, point. Does the loving bride, in the embrace of her beloved, ask for proof that he is alive and real? Answer? Of course not. Must the prayerful soul, clinging in passionate love and ecstasy to her beloved demonstrate that he exists? Answer? Does the prayerful soul clinging in passionate love and ecstasy to her beloved to her beloved to her beloved demonstrate that he exists? Must must the prayerful soul clinging to pa- in love and passion demonstrate? The answer is of course not. You have to just demonstrate it. You don't demonstrate when you're in the midst of that emotional moment. Of course not. So asked Sir Kierkegaard, sarcastically, we told that Anselm of Canterbury, St. Anselm, of course, was the one who formulated the ontological argument for God's existence. Brilliant, extraordinary, mind-expanding argument for God's existence. The ontological argument for God's existence. It's one of the most profound and intricate and complex arguments in all the history of philosophy. St. Anselm of Canterbury said it. And, of course, the history of that argument is such that it's so brilliant what I said that only a fool would understand it. And then Ganelo, who was, says, the fool responds. He says, I don't get what you just said. I've just proven to you logically through this intricate 
demonstration called the ontological argument that God exists. What's wrong with you? I don't get it. And Kierkegaard, who's attacking the logical demonstrations and all the proof, is saying, you don't need proof when you're in love with God. Told St. Anselm that the father of the very abstract and complex ontological proof spent many days in prayer and supplication that he, that he St. Anselm, presented with the, ra- with the rational evidence of the existence of God. So St. Anselm says, I prayed for this and I got it. This is it. God's here. My mind is termed Leda, transcends the bounds of the abstract logos and pass into the realm of the, ba- of the boundless, intimate, and impassioned experience where postulate and deduction, discursive knowledge and intuitive thinking, conception and perception, subject and object are all one. It's what I've explained often in the past is saying that a person who engages in PhD work and is involved and involved and involved ends up saying, beyond the rational, I love my field. Love is a pure term to use. You love your field? The answer is somebody who's engaged in this says, yes, I love my field. Whether it's chemistry or philosophy, whatever, you love your field. You're engaged. You're passionate about it. You really care about it. You're involved. It's wonderful. You love your field. Knowledge passes on to experience or to love. <clears throat> Good. So the Rambam, even the Rambam, and even the word Ladat is what? It's a sexual, passionate term. Is it not? Adam Yadat means a sexual, intimate relationship. So the word dot itself does not mean cognitive, abstract thinking. It means experiencing. So it proves this by saying that first, Ram, Ram talks about love of God. And the only paragraph 5 that he took after the, after the experience of God has been established by him as a firm reality, paragraph 1, to introduce the Aristotelian cosmological proof of the unmoved mover. The intellectual comes later. The experience comes first. Good. So all of that tells us what he's trying to get up here is that push aside the rational, cosmological, and intellectual, ontological proofs of God, and rather what one really needs to have is the experience of God, seeing God in reality rather than through reality. In reality is an experience which... How does one get that way? I don't know, there's a lot of... Words. How does one get that way? Yeah. That's what he's all talking about. Did he get that way, God, God willing? Who knows? Absolutely, yeah. He would say that. That he could not write this way unless he did experience that. Okay. One would say that, that what, he writes is, what he writes is through... Now, again, I would say that... Reading this alone, which we didn't do well because it's been five or six weeks and, and it's been through a lot of discussion, but I would say reading this alone is what gives you that experience. When you understand the experience and you oscillate to Adam too, when you feel the need of a relationship. Again, remember that original analogy of when is a person ready to get married? When he's born, no. When he's five years old, no. He's living a dependent existence, dependent upon his parents. When he's 14, 15, 16, and 17, he now becomes independent of the other. When is it right for him to get married when he feels a need for interdependency, a need for another? Again, our society, especially the community, does not allow one to even experience that. That's the sad part of what we like, because we never know what it's like to be unmarried. We're thrown into marriage right away when you're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, and therefore you never felt that need, because you're just thrown into it. So now you're part of it. It becomes normative existence. As opposed to that, imagine yourself, if you wait, you have that need to be married, and then feeling a need to share, a need to be with somebody else, and then you achieve an interdependent existence with that other person, then you know what lonely is all about. When you're lonely, and you've been in the Orient, been lonely, I imagine. Especially not now, because now there's 200 people there whenever you go there. But imagine if you went 20 years ago when you first went. There were less people there. Imagine 40 years ago. You're in a foreign land, foreign land, there's nobody, you don't speak the language, and you're lonely. And then you long for your family, for your wife, for your children, to be with somebody else. 
And then when you're with them, now you might take them for granted, but then you just remember, I remember when I was lonely for you when I was alone in the Orient, and then you say you appreciate them more so when you come together with them. So to imagine a person, and it's true, not all people are going to feel a need for interdependence, no people feel loneliness, it's all that's true. But if one were to search for God profoundly and have a need for God, if he experienced loneliness for God, then he would experience that gratified meaningfulness when he finds God. But one has to be a profound enough thinker to feel that loneliness. Not all people do. The guy, is, that, is that redemption? That is redemption. Correct. But then again, on a personal, intimate level. Correct. You're doing a good job with that. Majestic man, Adam one. Even when he belongs to the group of religious men, and feels the sick need. Right. Sorry, and this feels the sick need for transcendental experiences is gratified by his his encounter with God within the framework of the cosmic drama. That's Adam one stuff. So magic man is incapable. Majestic man is incapable of breaking out of the cosmic cycle. Cannot interpret his interest adventure of anything but cosmic categories. Therefore, the divine name of Elohim, which denotes God being the source of the cosmic dynamics, suffices to characterize the relationship performed between majestic man and his creator. Addressing himself to him through the cosmic occurrence. That's Adam 1. 95% of us are stunted over there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's true. However, covenantal men of faith craving, you have to feel that need for the other person to share life with. That's how you're supposed to get married. If you're a normally maturing, developing person, you get married when you have a need for another, craving for another. That's when you're in love. I need you. I need you to live life with you. If you do what I do, which is to ask a couple getting married to write about the other person and not share with each other. You really find, not all the time, but there are times when you find people expressing exactly what I'm saying right now. And this shouldn't surprise you. Either you experience yourself or your children experience it or you read it where a person says, I have a need to be with this person. I want to share life with this person. It's called love. It's when you love somebody. Covenantal man of faith created for a personal and intimate relationship with God could not find it in the cosmic Elohim encounter and had to shift his transcendental experience to a different level at which the finite eye meets the infinite he, capital H, face-to-face, quote-unquote. This strange communal relation between man and God is symbolized by Yudkevavke, which therefore appears in the biblical account of Adam II. Right? So, Selim Elohim really is character of Adam I, not Adam II. Completely. So, the cosmos, summarizing this issue over here, the cosmos provokes Adam the first, and yet it only reveals who God is is to Adam the second. Only when Adam the second is ready to ask the question, feels the loss, and ask the question, "Who is it that's trailing me?" Going beyond the intellectual perception of what Adam the first finds, Adam the first finds the cosmic experience, and he's and he's sorry. It's more than that. True reality, he finds, Adam 1 finds the true reality. It, no, no, he only finds true reality in, in cosmic. But, then, but it's not good enough. Yes, it's not good enough. It's Adam the second, who's also provoked by the cosmic spirit, that provides the answer. And again, the two parts of the same personality. It's sort of what you might do, let's say, from scientists from 9 to 5 may do science. He may be an astronomer. He may be an astrophysicist. And he experiences it and he thinks and he says, wow, this is Einstein saying how glory the heavens are. Where did Einstein never get to? The need for a God. He never felt lonely enough to search for God beyond the 9 to 5 experience of what a professional scientist does. You find that when you have finished doing that and you come home and you're, you're lonely and you say, there's something more out there that I need. Rabbi, isn't all this very much accomplished 
He doesn't have one word. What would have had a That's his point. This is all universal and not Jewish. It's all. Wait, 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 wait. You're all throwing things into the table. All that's true. We'll get to that. Hold on. Einstein never became Adam too. Einstein never became Adam too. Right. He did. What if he did? He said, what if? So it's, the only way it can become a true halakha, in my opinion. That's not what this is saying. Halakha, you're taking note of it. It's all based on... Halakha brings you to the discipline of reaching Adam too. That's correct too. Okay, good. So but you're just taking slices of a cake that you're not even seeing on the table yet. It's not here yet. One second. <laughs> the issue over here, first of all, again, Jack is, is quite right in seeing this as lo, as Bereshit. It's all universal man. It's everybody. That's correct. There's not one word. Any... Rabbinic statements are all in the footnotes. The text over here is completely divorced of anything halakhic. That's true. Now, of course, Rabbi Zvezhik also wrote what they were talking about, which is a work called Isha Halakha. And then the question is, how does Isha Halakha meet the lonely man of faith? That's, that's another discussion. And that is a confrontation between the two of them. And you're right, and you're right. Sorry, say what? Who was he praying to? His God, the universal God. Yeshu. Yes, so what? What's the difference? He was praying so to uh, a, God, a man who became God. So, therefore what? Uh, we didn't say that he achieved anything. What we said is that he provided us with the ontological argument of God's existence. To the contrary, he didn't achieve anything because he only had the ontological argument. Not the experiential. Well, you could have it with the false God, too. <coughs> Perhaps. That's an interesting question. Yeah, you could have it with a false God. Or you could have attributed it to the false God. You could become that Adam, too, through the false God. That's, I don't know if that's possible. That's, that's, another, that's another, interesting, it's another interesting point that one has to pursue. What would he say about that particular issue? Can one achieve the Adam, too, experience of redemption with idolatry? I would say no to that. No, I would say no. How about with the right weed? I don't want to be dramatic, but how about with the right... With place. Your mind just wanders and becomes that. You know, uh, it's an interesting question. I, I would say he'd say no to that. I would say he'd say... Yeah, <laughs> we haven't experienced that, so I don't know. I don't mean it that way, but I meant to say that the mind just reaches a point through... You need an other. You need yeah. the other is the, is the true he, to feel redeemed. You're not experiencing they, the they same... You're not experiencing what he's talking about over here. Exactly. You're experiencing something, but you're not experiencing redemption what he's talking about over here. Okay, so that's, what I would say, is that's the end of our discussion about this sentimental king discussion. Wow. Right? We don't have to go through the rest of the book. The rest of the book talks about prayer and prophecy and also talks about something else. Besides the ontological loneliness that one experiences, the last chapter talks about the historical loneliness where our secular society, which is so secular, finds, therefore, Adam too finds himself very alienated from this modern world. How does Adam too cope in the modern, technologically, scientifically oriented world which is inhospitable to what he really wants to experience. That's the rest of this book, which, which, we, don't, which, we, don't write, which we don't really want to read. We want to finish pursuing our interpretation of Sinem king But we'll start off next time with Eli's question, is this shot or Dadash? So you better prepare your defense. I, for one, Are you back arrested. for Super Bowl Sunday? Why are you coming back? Uh, sure. Super Bowl Sunday? Yeah, of course. I'm coming back next, I guess, Tuesday night. Wednesday night. Okay, so, so two weeks from... Thank you.